0: A Living History
1: production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hi, I'm Peter Hart, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm with my old friend, my oldest friend. Not so much
0: of really the old.
1: Gary Bain. Uh, who's looking particularly lovely this morning? And I've just been hearing about his nocturnal adventures, and uh, they're they're the stuff of legend. Um, nothing, nothing involving sex. Obviously, he's married, but uh, other, you know, just this, just the daily tr- trials and tribulations of being Gary. The illnesses, the sudden unexplained events—that's that, the sort of thing that is just your daily life, isn't it, Gary?
0: Yeah, we're going to gloss over that, Peter, and move on. <laughs> All right.
1: Now, what do we do today, Gary? Uh,
0: today, we're talking about two naval battles we're talking Ooh, two, about
1: gary two. two
0: we're talking about the battles of coronel and the
1: falklands ah, both british tribes i expect uh,
0: <laughs> well let's not spoil the uh, the ending pete oh, oh, oh.
1: right now uh, so so let's set the scene so we're in 1914 uh uh the Admiralty always knew they were going to do a distant blockade based largely on Scapa Flow. Uh, they, they were going to, they, they weren't going to come out and engage in a mutrafalga. Um, the Great British public, the Great British public was expecting a bit more, weren't they? Go, they were expecting. Well, Der Tag, the Navy used to call it. The day. They were expecting a huge battle and, uh, and, and, a, and a glorious triumph. So uh, they, were, uh, they were a bit disappointed. Uh, and and the Royal Navy, I suppose, was a bit disappointed. Uh, they'd lost the Audacious, a super dreadnought that had been uh, that had been mined. Uh, they'd had painful losses like the Hogue, Cressera and Abakir. And in the end, nothing much had happened, had it. There'd been, the, you know, the odd skirmish, Battle of Heligon and this sort of thing. But not much had happened, had it... Um, um, and, 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 and what do you think made that worse, Gary? Well,
0: it, it was the difficulties that the, the Royal Navy were having with dealing with the German commerce raiders, you know, the, the light cruisers such as the Dresden, the Karlsruhe, and the Leipzig. Um, but the, the biggest problem that was posed to them was by the German China squadron, which was based at Tsingtao, and it was commanded by the resourceful Vice Admiral Maximilian von Spee.
1: We call him Max.
0: No, let's call him Von Spee. <laughs> All
1: right, I'll go for that. Now, what was what did this con- uh, what did his squadron consist of, Gary?
0: Well, uh, it consisted of two. Modern,
1: relatively modern, yeah,
0: uh, armoured cruisers, the Scharnhorst and the Gneiser now, which most people will have heard of, I would hasten to to, to add, probably. Uh,
1: they now, were what c- were they? Tell us a bit about You've looked them up. Uh, uh, tell us a bit about them.
0: Well, they were two modern cruisers in the sense that they were launched in 1906. They were well armoured uh, by comparison to the, the British armoured cruisers. Uh, and in fact, the Brits had to react to... Uh, the uh, development of the Scharnhorst and Gneiser now. now. Uh, so, uh, with the cruisers, they, I mean. they introduced the battlecruisers purely to deal with this class of uh, battleship.
1: And the first battlecruiser was, of course, the Invincible. I wonder if we'll hear about her again. We'll, 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 we'll gloss over that.
0: For well, it, it always augurs well when a ship's called the Invincible. Oh, what it? can
1: go wrong? Uh, and, and now, what else did he have? So, he's got the Scharnhorst and Gneiser now. Uh, what else he got?
0: Well, it's got the Nuremberg, the Emden and the Konigsberg. They're light cruisers. And there was a collection, I mean, bearing in mind the times, a collection of colliers and supply ships, which enabled them to create havoc across the whole of the Pacific Ocean.
1: Because uh, those ships are important because, of course, coaling is important and uh, the bases you've got. Because uh, Tsang Tau, I think, was uh, captured uh, very early on and uh, so they haven't got a base like that uh, they're all across the the pacific at one but and they detach the emden don't they and and she's really well known in fact we might do a podcast on her later on and matt M- mclaughlin has got a, a rather brilliant podcast with with one of his friends on on the sinking of the uh, of the emden by the sydney uh But she is a stuff of legend, isn't it? I mean, she really did well, didn't she? Well, she
0: she sank some 68,000 tonnes of shipping before she was sunk by the Sydney. You know, in terms of success, relatively successful, we can't
1: be completely successful because she was sunk. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. Uh, now, uh, what else? So that, the traditional response to commerce raiders uh, was uh, a convoy system. This is what British is. A convoy system is you put all the merchantmen together and then you have uh, escorts, uh, uh, ships to protect them, uh, naval ships. Now, they didn't do this uh, and th- <laughs> this is uh, it's difficult to understand. They instead used a, a, a patrols here there and everybody where uh just all sorts of ships often obsolescent they're just protecting this the shipping lanes by operating independently and sailing about trying to protect them uh with the exception of the um the uh the, the, the troop convoys and that's indeed what the sydney was protecting when she met the Emden. now uh what's this like uh, did you think that'll work
0: well, it's the proverbial needle in the haystack, isn't it? The Pacific Ocean's quite big, really. Quite, quite <laughs> big. So you know they they were they were effectively guessing where they were likely to intercept the German raiders. So it's a complete guess.
1: Now, one thing I liked is uh, what, a a great naval historian, uh, Arthur Marder, in his uh, book from Dreadnought to Scapa Flow, he says. Uh, until this is before the advent of the u-boat menace he says patrols were reasonably successful except on foreign stations hang and on, hang, point- on <laughs> hang on
0: except on foreign station isn't that where the enemy's likely to be
1: that is where the enemy raiders were so it was except it, it was successful except it wasn't it wasn't when japan's coming into the war uh it's it's obvious. They've got quite a big fleet, haven't they? And yeah, by
0: 1920, it's the third largest fleet in the world, behind the Royal Navy and the US Navy. So they, they,
1: they, they can't be ignored. And they've got battlecruisers, uh, uh, um, the name of which I've forgotten. But Von Spee, he's, he's a clever bloke. They can't stay indefinitely in the Pacific. So he decides to go across the Pacific and operate against British trade routes off South America. Um, uh, he's going to use the Chilean Chilean ports to recall. They're neutral and sympathetic. Um but he's also got his eyes on somebody else. So who would he have his beady eye on?
0: Well, he's looking at the uh, the weak and uh, you know history repeating itself. The the weak British South Atlantic Cruiser Squadron, which is commanded by Rear Admiral Sir Christopher Craddock.
1: Now, what what what's his force like? What's he got? Well,
0: he's he's only got uh, the elderly armored cruiser Good Hope and Monmouth. The light cruiser Glasgow, and pretty much a useless light arm merchantman, the Otranto, which was known as a a floating haystack. Is that complimentary? No,
1: I don't think so, Pete. (laughs) I'm not even
0: sure a haystack floats.
1: Look, I mean, so this squadron, they're clearly in danger. Because uh, von Spee is coming, uh, they've got no chance against him. Now, what about communication? Was the Admiralty in close communication with them? Talk to me about communications, Gary. What, what are they like? Are they? Are they is it just uh, instantaneous, or, or, or is there a problem?
0: I don't know. You
1: Why? No, so
0: just think about the time. <laughs> so there's no direct communication. That's the point. So the Admiralty and Cradock. Craddock cannot talk directly, so signals were sent by cable to local consoles, and from there they're transmitted by wireless to the Falklands and retransmitted from them onto any ships at sea.
1: So what sounded like uh, so a reply, I presume, would uh, has to go has to go in a reverse route. So um, what we talk about? We talking about minutes, hours, days. What we talk about?
0: It was several days between uh, signals being dispatched and arriving.
1: So you could send out a, an order, and then people. But there is lots of opportunity for, for, for order and counter order and disorder, isn't there?
0: Yeah, and of course, it, uh, as we know from current circumstances, communications got to be clear and concise. And the Admiralty fail in this; their 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 communications lack clarity, uh, and uh, you know the circumstances change between them sending something and it being received. Uh, are signals secure at this time, Gary? No, a lot of them are open, and, and if there are any enemy in the area, they're going to be picking up the signals. So
1: they, they just pick it up? They, 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 can, they can pick it up? There's no, there's no codes or anything? Well, if there is, there it's pretty off. Uh, just direction finding, I presume, would give you a clue of where... where yeah, they're... so
0: what they used to do is is often uh, they would get one ship in a squadron to transmit all of the signals, so signals. So anyone listening would think that there's just one ship
1: in the Just area. HMS Glasgow or just uh, just the Sharnhors? And, yeah. and little knowing dun, 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 dun.
0: Yeah, now this might have a bearing uh, In the
1: story a little bit later, Peter Ooh, I'm all of a tremble, Garrett. All of a tremble On the 5th of October, 1914 The intercepted signal traffic uh, Lousy Admiralty to warn Craddock von Spee's on his way How do they reinforce oh, him? Oh, they
0: must have reinforced him with everything
1: available Oh, no What they do is send the very venerable pre-dreadnought The Canopus now this has got twelve-inch guns, but it's slow, and and it's old. It really is old. And what's a word that we might use? Crap. Um,
0: <laughs> well,
1: uh, yeah, it, in a, do you think it helps him, or do you think it's actually? almost as much well, a it's, nuisance
0: it's a bit of a hindrance really I mean there are erroneous reports that it was as slow as 12 knots she could actually manage 16 but if you if you bear in mind that the uh, the enemy was managing around 23 knots even at top speed it, it was pretty useless. So
1: if von, you see the Admiralty are sending orders uh, s- sort of implying or stating and this is the confusion that uh, vo- that uh, Cradock is meant to Deal with the with Spee, but at the same time he can't possibly catch him with uh, with with the, with the Canopus in company. But without the Canopus in company, uh, he's got no chance of beating him. So this is a, a little bit of uh, a. So calligree. what does he
0: do with the Canopus then, Pete?
1: Well, he sort of he leaves him behind at Port Stanley, where uh, I mean the, the the Admiralty are saying things like oh, you can sort of use it as a citadel and it, it'll be you'll be your ships will be round in. but a citadel's Im- immobile and that's the point uh so he leaves him behind at port stanley in the falkland islands and he moves and uh, craddock moves around the cape of good hope uh, uh as n- named after the ship probably do you think possibly <laughs> and into the pacific and he's his attitude is this he says but shall trust circumstances will enable me to force an action so he has a positive attitude to forcing action because he thinks he's being pushed into it, it And he's pushed by the Admiralty, by their lack of sympathy, their lack of reinforcement. He's making a series of rash decisions. He's going to take on a German squadron that's clearly stronger. and, And they've got superior speed, they've got superior armament, so they can dominate any action and prevent any escape once contact is made or close contact is made. Now, uh, he asks for reinforcement. Again and again, he asks for the armoured cruiser defence, which is on the other side, on the, well, in the West Indies, the defence. Uh, and on 28th of October, he's finally told that he can't have him. And uh, this is the final straw for, for Craddock. And what's he like? What's cr- he, he's a muscular Christian, I think the expression used to be. And he, he's hot-headed. Uh, brave, hot-headed, and how does he react? Well, this is Paymaster Commander Lloyd Hurst of the Glass, H.M.S. Glasgow, which is one of the light cruisers, with uh, with. Um, uh uh, Craddock, and he says this, tired of protesting his inferior- inferiority, the receipt of this telegram would be sufficient spur to Craddock to hoist, as he did half an hour later, his signal, shred 20 miles apart and look for the enemy. A positive decision to search out von Spee. What he was thinking, we'll never know, because, well, let's leave that for the punter to imagine. So we've now got Navigating Officer Portman, of uh, also of HMS Glasgow. What does he say? He's, he, he survives. What does he think? It must be going in Craddock's mind. And then, again, this is just speculation, but what does he think?
0: The defence was refused him, and he was as good as told he was skulking at Stanley. What else was there to do except go and be sunk? He was a very brave man, and they were practically calling him a coward. If he hadn't attacked that night, we might never have seen him again, and then the Admiralty would have blamed him for not fighting.
1: Now, what is a tradition in the Royal Navy? What it, it, do odds matter in the Royal Navy, or is it the senior service? Does it's it, the
0: senior service, and it was well known never to refuse action. It doesn't
1: take a step back.
0: No, nope. odds don't matter. No, but I mean, it, it's not reckless. Um, it, it, he, the lack of support from the Admiralty meant that he he had to. He had to do something,
1: frankly. Or they blame him. Or they blame him. Is there any recent example? Well, yes, there was, because poor old Admiral Sir Ernest Troubridge, who wasn't the greatest Admiral, I have to be honest, but he was absolutely pilloried, as you'll remember, Gary, for not engaging the Garbon when it was in the Mediterranean in August 1914. He let them escape because he took a decision and the Admiralty didn't back him. They bloody slaughtered him. They court-marched. They did everything. They threw everything at him uh, and he was, he was shamed. Um, and Craddock, Craddock wasn't going to have that, was he?
0: No, oh, and as you mentioned earlier, public opinion was expecting this grand battle and the Royal Navy to to emerge triumphant from this engagement. So from there was what, from whatever, from yeah, whatever, from whatever. So there was pressure from public opinion too.
1: Well, let's have a let's have a bit more look at the Sharnos and the Ganais now. Now they're, they're crack ships, aren't they? Uh, uh, why are they crack ships? Uh, they're two years into their deployment. Uh, they've got long service crews. Notice that. Long service, regular crews, high standards of gunnery. Uh, they're, they're, how are they armed? They've got 8.2-inch guns, eight of them. Eight 8.2-inch guns each and six 5.9-inch guns. Now, the, the Good Hope and the Monmouth, they're the same class of ship, but they're, they're, they're badly outclassed. How, Gary? How well, are they outclassed? Well,
0: for one thing, intercepted traffic, had wireless traffic, led them to believe that that both squadrons believed that they were going to collide off the uh, Coronel Coast, but just one cruiser because of the interception of the wireless traffic. So they weren't expecting to be outclassed. But if you think about it, Good Hope and Monmouth, their broadside strength was far less than the Germans. I mean, not just slightly less, massively less. Some of the guns could not be fired in rough weather. Was it rough weather? Well, let's have a think. Where are
1: they? South Atlantic, no, yes. South, South, well, Pacific. South Pacific. At this point, isn't uh, there a song about the South? Oh, no, that's <laughs> They had armor
0: piercing shells and fuses, but they were obsolete by this stage. The arm ret- protection, as we mentioned earlier, was was inferior to that of the German Navy. What
1: right? about the crews? Were they were they jolly Jack Tar British regulars who'd seen everything? Where, you know, determined, skillful crews.
0: No, a lot of them were reservists, and and as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, one was the elder brother of uh, your good friend Joe Murray of uh, Gallipoli fame.
1: And which ship was he on?
0: He was on the Good Hope.
1: Wow. So, well, that's so uh, indirect. I knew the brother of someone who was on who's going to be now. Well, I hope he gets through it all right.
0: And bear in mind, they'd been mobilised at the Outbreak Award. They hadn't even fired their guns in practice, let alone,
1: let alone in anger. So we've got crack ships, better armed, better defended, with uh, better trained and more experienced crews.
0: And, you know, most importantly, better armoured.
1: Now, on board the Atranta was a—that's a, the that liner, the one that looks the like... Haystack. The haystack. The haystack. Was it a giant haystack? <laughs> Oh dear.
0: Showing your age, Pete.
1: Yeah, I remember him. Uh, Seaman A.A. A. Bushkin. And he what did he say, Gary?
0: We were steaming up the South Pacific off the Chilean coast on a grey November afternoon, going north, expecting to find the German ships. We knew we were somewhere in the vicinity. All of a sudden, there was a cry from the crow's nest. Smoke on the starboard bow! That was enough. We knew it was the German ships. Now... Interestingly, we've both recently watched the uh, 1927 BFI film, uh, Coronel and Falklands, and you can see the amount of smoke that is produced by these coal-burning ships, and it it can be seen for miles. It stretches out behind the ships, it makes it difficult to see when engaged in action, and you can see it for miles.
1: Absolutely. Now, the Otranto tells uh, Craddock and the British squadron assemble over the next couple of hours. And we're now going to go, we're going to go to him a lot, aren't you? You're going to be Carpenter Sylvester Pauly. He's on HMS uh, Glasgow. Now, he did an oral history interview uh, with the BBC. Uh, it's in the BBC Great War series. Now, what does Pauly say, Gary?
0: We formed into battle line ahead with the uh, Trento at some distance on our port side and steamed north. We sighted smoke on the horizon, and it soon became evident that there were two German armoured cruisers recognised as the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau. The admiral then gave orders.
1: Now Bushkin, uh, he's he's still on the Atranto. Obviously, they don't move. That's a bit of a stupid thing for me to say. What does what does Bushkin say?
0: Bushkin says, "My station was under the bridge. There was about fourteen to sixteen officers and others on the bridge. I was immediately under on the fore deck. My job was stretcher bearing in case there was any casualty on the bridge or in the vicinity. We were getting tensed up, full of excitement, wondering what was going to happen." I and others like me, merchant seamen, had no training whatsoever as regards to naval action. I was very much worried. Suddenly, there was a shell comes overhead with a rumbling, screaming noise. We turned. Christ, is it going to hit us? What's that? Fortunately, it misses us. Then there's shells all around us. All misses. Then the Germans concentrated them on the Good Hope and the Monmouth. Left us alone, fortunately. Our guns were
1: 4.7-inch guns. Absolutely useless. Well, not only uh, they just couldn't reach the Germans. No chance. No chance. Now the action's short-lived. This is the Battle of Coronel, and it is a short-lived action. Uh, it, it, it's first of November, nineteen fourteen, and uh, it, it's just it, it it's it's an awful battle. It's depressing in some ways. Um, Craddock puts his mismatched squadron into line. He's got the Good Hope leaving, leading, followed by the Monmouth. Then the Glasgow and the Otrantos bringing up the rear and off to the side. They're facing in, uh, the Sarnors is leading, the Gneiss now, the Leipzig and the Dresden and the uh, Nuremberg's well behind. Craddock, what's Craddock trying to do? What's his aim? Well, Uh,
0: he's got to to get close because otherwise uh, he's going to be outgunned from a distance.
1: So he won't be able to... His aim possibly... One of the speculations, and this was speculated a lot in that film you just mentioned, the Coronel and the Falklands 1927 film. Uh, I watched it as well. and uh, There's a lot of speculation. We've just got to try and damage the enemy because others will follow us, that kind of thing. Yeah, slow him
0: down, that sort of thing. But you
1: can't do that if you can't reach him. No. Uh, So that's what's going on here. Now... um, It's hopeless, isn't it? This is uh, Engineer Lieutenant Commander uh, Shrub-Soul on HMS Glasgow. And he says this. The light was very good, but the sea was so rough that the Monmouth and Good Hope could not fire their lower guns. And our guns were almost awash. We tried to close the enemy but they avoided action and we began to think that they did not intend to fight. (laughs) (laughs) However, the German admiral was cleverer than we thought and all he was waiting for was the setting of the sun. As the sun set immediately behind us, we were silhouetted against the sky while their ships were only black blurs in the fading light, failing light. The German ships now turned towards us and opened fire, their shots falling short. So who's firing at who? Well, they're firing at in, in, in tandem so Charnhorst fires at the Good Hope Gneiss out at the Monmouth and within five minutes the German shells are smashing home uh what does Craddock do well for one
0: thing he he orders the Otranto to break off an escape she's she's no use in a
1: battle frankly no use nor ornament no. Uh, no. Uh, so uh Sylvester Pauli will t- take up his story he's aboard the Glasgow uh what does he say We
0: soon got within a certain range and and the Good Hope opened a ranging shot which fell short. Oh dear. The enemy then opened up with rippling salvos. We did not possess that method of firing. With their superior speed and their longer range, it soon became evident to us that our ships were in for a rough time. The two large German cruisers concentrated on the Good Hope and Monmouth and the smaller cruisers on Glasgow.
1: Now, Gareth, I'm slightly surprised. Why, why aren't you reading some quotes from people on the Good Hope and the Monmouth? Well, because they are
0: slightly busy and, uh, frankly, are any of them going to
1: survive, Peter? We'll have to find out, won't we? So, Paulie, he's on the upper deck. He's got a good view, hasn't he? Now, well, as he says, he's uh, he's on the upper deck during the whole action. What does he say? He
0: goes on to say, I was standing on the upper deck during the whole action.
1: <laughs> I was hoping you'd miss that bit out. <laughs> 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 And Sorry. had
0: a good view of everything that You're took place. Literal-minded swine. <laughs> That's pretty much what you just said, Peter. It isn't is it? pretty well. <laughs> um, he says, "My duty was to report any damage in any part of the ship that was visible at the time." Fortunately, we were very low in the water. The sea was very rough at the time, and at times washing over us under a leaden sky. They could not hit the Glasgow because of her height. She's low slung in the
1: water. She's only a light cruiser. There's not much of her. We were very
0: low in the water. They fired at us when we were on the crest of the wave, i.e. when they could see them. Uh, And by the time the shelves arrived, we were down in a trough and the shelves were ricocheting over the railway
1: lines. Over like railway
0: (laughs) railway trains. I'm not quite sure why he would say that. Uh, We could frequently feel the wind of the shelves as they passed over.
1: Nothing like a bit of wind passing over. (laughs) no but that's very interesting talking of wind there's Fred and, and he's not, there's not been the slightest sign of it I think he may have got a cork inserted he's asleep I think Oh, now what uh, pa- 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 Paulie realises it's hopeless doesn't he it- it's brave but it's hopeless and, and he's watching what's happening to the good hope
0: yeah bear in mind he is watching this unfold in front of his very eyes I mean that's quite extraordinary really he says I saw a shell enter the foretop of the good hope and blowing a man completely out of the top into the sea I went on the starboard side of the ship thinking a man might float by there because there we had a life boy and I was going to slip that life boy if he was near our ship. But there was no visible sign of any man.
1: Now, uh, we have to, we're going to the Germans. I still don't understand, still no nobody from the Monmouth or good hope, but uh, I'm going to now be Lautnant Knoop. I've no idea how I pronounce it, k n o o p uh, and he's on the Scharnhorst, and he says this. I'm not going to do a Cod German accent, because uh, people are dying in uh, this time. In most cases, hits by uh, high-explosive shells were immediately followed by outbreaks of fire. He's talking about what he can see uh, on, on the Monmouth and Goodhall. Twice I observed what I believed to be an explosion of ammunition. The flames shot up immediately after hits by high-explosive shells and were distinguishable from the other fires by their dimensions and outline. Some hits, probably on the deck, sent up showers of sparks over a wide area. When armour was hit, thick black clouds with sharp outlines were observed. Hits were so frequent that it was impossible to note them in chronological order. The Good Hope received serious hits in the fore part of the ship, on the upper bridge, on the mast about 30 feet above the deck, on the after side of the foretop, also hit repeatedly amidships. most of these causing fires. The after battery was hit several times and fires broke out. The flames in the interior of the ship could be seen through the portholes two sh- shells struck the ship near the after turret. The Monmouth, now, before we go the Monmouth, uh, this is uh, this is where Christopher Craddock is, so when it was hit on the bridge, that could have been doing for him, but also this is where uh, uh, Murray's brother is, is, uh, is He's on this ship. It must have been hell on earth. The Monmouth was hit on a four, six-inch turret. The high explosive shell blew off the roof. A terrific explosion of charges must have Blown the whole turret off the forecastle, for it disappeared completely. I observed that many shells struck the ship amidships. A huge column of fire, almost as high as the mast and sixty to ninety feet across, suddenly shot up on the starboard side. Between thirty and forty hits were counted in all. In all, at times three or four fires were burning simultaneously. Now, another witness of this, uh, from the other perspective, is uh, is is Paulie, and he's on uh, he's watching. Uh, at the end, if you like.
0: It was not long before the Good Hope veered to port out of position and the Monmouth had started to list. These two ships were really out of control and eventually, a few hundred yards on our port side, there appeared to be a fire in the fore turret of the Good Hope, followed by a tremendous explosion. The Good Hope disappeared, but Monmouth battled on under terrible conditions. The sea was running very high until darkness. In those latitudes it comes on you very rapidly. We approached the Monmouth and asked what condition she was in and she made a reply to say that she was making water very rapidly forward and I must get my stern to the sea. With that we left her and shortly afterwards we saw a terrific explosion. That was the end of the Monmouth. The battle was over. We were in a very bad condition ourselves. We'd been holed several times. One of our mess decks was flooded. One bunker flooded."
1: Now, uh, I I can't imagine what it was like on the Monmouth in those final moments. Uh, From the Otranto, uh, Bushkin's got a distant view uh, and he admires the courage of the gun crews, doesn't he? What does he say?
0: Seaman A.A. Bushkin. Although they were sinking, their guns were firing. Those men were carrying out their action stations right until the very last. There was a darkening sky, a leaden sea. The weather was getting gradually worse and we were steaming south, getting our way out of it. Our thoughts, very mixed. Cursing because we couldn't get to help our pals, to help them. Glad to get away. What could we do? Nothing. Just nothing.
1: So, uh, b- both the Glasgow and Otranto uh, managed to escape in the darkness. Uh, and and they leave, as we've said, mo- the the Monmouth to a fate. Uh, Engineer Lieutenant Commander P- PJ Shrub- Shrubsole uh, on the Glasgow says and you can tell how he feels. We turned and ran. We reluctantly said goodbye to her as it was suicide to follow us. All the enemy were concentrating their fire on us. They missed us in the dark and the last we saw of them was a flash of their guns as as they fired on the luckless Monmouth. A single shot from one of their big guns might have sunk us and it was simply the mercy of God that we survived. God Not so merciful to the, uh, must have taken again the the crews of the uh, uh, Monmouth and the Good Hope. Uh, how many survived? Uh, uh, surely, uh, let's get, let's have some good news for, from this awful battle. Uh, how many survived from the uh, the sixteen hundred officers and men of the uh, Good Hope and, and Monmouth? Eight hundred each. How many?
0: There were no survivors. I'm going to repeat that, Peter. There were no survivors from the Good Hope or the Monmouth. The Germans they suffered some six hits and they had two men wounded. The losses for the Good Hope and the Monmouth, as you mentioned, were one thousand six hundred officers and men
1: dead. Dead. Uh, that is—it's uh, it's quite chastening, isn't it? Hence the lack of funny accents in this uh, this podcast. You've
0: mentioned it before. You know, at sea, when when something goes wrong at sea, it is disastrous,
1: and it happens very quickly. Uh, well, funnily enough, that wasn't so quick in the end. They, they they could see their death coming to them in in a matter. Uh, it's awful. Uh, this is uh, the, uh, a the a one sided naval battle. It was was it a humiliation? Well, yes. How do the admi- how do the British try and uh, present this in propaganda? How did they present it in the film? Uh, they they present it as a glorious defeat,
0: almost uh, a victory, but but this was the Royal Navy's first defeat in around a 100 years
1: it was and uh, we th- th- that's the thing it, it, it was it's such a, a th- th- the defeat was in a way a victory of british courage
0: and bear in mind what was happening on the western front at this same time october to november was the first battle of each so again public opinion was all about you know having success at sea, because things were difficult on the Western Front.
1: Now, whose fault is this defeat? Is it is it Craddock's fault? It's the Admiralty's. So, Craddock is
0: not blameless? He's not, but he had asked for reinforcements. He'd asked for the defence. The Admiralty knew the challenge that he was facing, and, you know, they, they sent him something that gave him no benefit whatsoever, and he'd left... The, the ship in the, the Falklands.
1: Is this a disaster for the Royal Navy? Although, I mean, it, it's a disaster propaganda-wise, it's a di- disaster to morale. Is it a disaster in material terms? Well, not really.
0: Uh, I may, I know that sounds quite callous given the losses, but, but there are a, a couple of older cruisers. You know, in terms of the uh, ships of the line, no.
1: So, the men matter. The and men, uh, but not the ships. Not the ships. So, the ships that went down made no difference to the strength of... Oh, did you not turn that off, Peter? No. <laughs> now, um, also,
0: you know, the Germans see this as a massive victory. Kaiser Wilhelm awards about 300 iron crosses. Three, three. 300 iron crosses to the officer and men in von Space Squadron. You know, they make a huge thing of this. They've defeated the Royal Navy. Oh,
1: von Spee must have been absolutely jubilant. Absolutely. He must have been on top of the world.
0: No, he thought he was doomed. Uh, and again, you know, he he's running short of ammunition. He knows he's never going
1: to get back to Germany. He knows that. So, um uh... Now, how is this portrayed in the film? Because this is this is a, actually it drives you mad. Uh, it's because it's a repeated theme for the rest of the film. There's an incident, isn't there, that happens? Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it is actually based on fact. He, he, he sees his duty is to maximise the damage he could inflict before the British uh, retaliation bursts upon he him. He knows
1: that's coming, doesn't he? Yeah,
0: and and he's offered a bunch of roses. Uh, uh, by uh, an admirer in Valparaiso, I think that's how you pronounce that. And in the film, that's, that's not roses, that's flowers including a white lily.
1: Dun, 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 dun. And
0: in the film, he says, uh, and in fact he said this uh, in, in, in real life, he said they'd be better kept for his funeral. Now, in the film, you keep seeing sight of these, these flowers in his cabin. Maps are moved uh, around the flowers and, and it runs for about 10, 15 minutes. But he did actually say it and, and he didn't expect it to be very long either.
1: Now, one of the misfortunes for him was, uh, was the changing first sea lord, uh, uh, Prince uh, Louis of Battenberg. He'd been under a populist attack because he had German descent. Actually, the whole bloody royal family. Well, the whole family. royal family. Did, I yes. don't understand why poor old Prince Louis was picked on. Why not get rid of the whole royal family if you want that? Uh, but he'd been replaced unfairly by Sir John Fisher. Um, Jackie. Sir John Fisher, Jackie. and uh, he was a fiery old controversialist. He, he'd been the the progenitor, if you like, of uh, like the daddy. The daddy of uh, of both the Dreadnought and the Battlecruiser. So the Dreadnought, the all big gun battleship, and the Battlecruiser, which were big gun, fast, lightly armoured ships, which were to deal with what were they to deal with?
0: Oh, they were to deal with uh, the, um, the pre Dreadnoughts and the
1: Battlecruisers of the German fleet and most of all... Oh,
0: sorry, specifically the Sarnhurst and Gneiser now.
1: And, and armoured cruisers and light cruisers. They were fast enough to catch them. That, that's it, spot on. Now, interestingly,
0: now- in the film that we're referring to, you can see it, it's really very good... To, to appreciate the size of the fleets and the magnificence and the, and the deploying of sea power. And it's well worth seeing the film just for that sort of thing.
1: It is, because what does Fisher do? Fisher deploys... <laughs> Against the protests of Admiral Jenico, who's in charge of the Grand Fleet, who is reduced to almost nothing—he's—he's he's only got four battlecruisers left against five in the High Seas Fleet, because Fisher sends three off to deal with Von Spie. One goes to the West Indies Station just in case, but two go to deal with him. Uh, He—he's—it's—it's it's an amazingly bold step. Uh, the two that go out are the Invincible and the Inflexible, and you've got a viewpoint on their ship names, aren't you? You. you, you.
0: Well, I mentioned it earlier, it, it's <laughs> it's never a good portent to call anything invincible, I don't think. I think some tanks were called invincible as well. Um, and, and unfortunately, it usually ends in one way. <laughs> yes, well... We'll see what happens. And to be fair to Jellicoe, actually, to to go back to your point, he had really good reason to be nervous. Uh, Had the Germans acted, we were in a very precarious position.
1: The the margin of superiority was never narrower than it was then. We'd lost the the audacious. Ships were damaged. Ships have to be refit. Did the high seas fleet have to come out at any specific time? No, it could come out when it chose. So everything... They'd have everything there, but the British fleet could be caught on the hop. Ships under refit, so Jellicoe had right to be refitted. This is a very bold move by Fisher, isn't it? Very bold. It is. Now, uh, so uh, the Princess Royal goes to guard the West Indies. The Invincible and Flexible are sent there in the Mediterranean. They go off to South Atlantic. They're under the command of Vice Admiral Doveton Sturdy. Um, now, what are they? T- tell me, what are these ships like? What, what are they armed with? Uh, Eight inch guns or whatever?
0: No, or? they've got eight 12 inch guns, and here's very interesting they can make 28 knots. That's peak. faster than the others. They totally outclass Von Spee's armoured cruisers. And this, as your point earlier, this is exactly what the battle cruisers expect. Cruisers yeah. When they were example. put in
1: the line of battle uh, fighting each other and fighting German dreadnoughts, they're. they're their lack of armour is a bit of a weakness, as, they will, perhaps, as we discussed at Jutland. Remember. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is uh, this is. Uh,
0: but they were designed for speed.
1: They were designed for speed, and their armour is poor. Their armour, by the way, isn't much better than the armour on the the Charnos and the Guys Now, that's not all he sends out. Though they wouldn't send just the defence out to, before, but now they send three armoured cruisers. Who are they? That's the Carnarvon, the Cornwall. Uh, uh,
0: and defence, and rather interestingly, Kent, which I make four. Oh, sorry, Cornwall and defence and Kent. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't understand that. Uh, uh, I think I may have made a mistake there. There's two light cruisers as well, and that's the Glasgow again and ah. the Bristol. Hurrah for the light cruisers and the armed merchantman macedonia which I don't think we'll ever mention again. Now they, they're going out and they're joining the old pre-dreadnought. Now, where's that? Where's it? Where's the Canopus?
0: Uh, The Canopus, as we mentioned earlier, had been run aground uh, on the harbour mud at Port Stanley. And uh, you mentioned it. It was an improvised fort, basically.
1: (laughs) They would refloat it later. But uh, yeah, that's what it was. Now, Sturdy arrives out. uh, He sails out there. He He takes his time, you know. He doesn't rush. And he arrives on the morning of the 7th of December, 1914. And uh, they immediately start coaling. And this, if you watch this film, this is a pain in the ass in the film because it, it, never, it never bloody ends, does it? It's just they, they keep showing the engine. The, 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 they show the stokers and they show the...
0: <laughs> and the increasing steam.
1: Yeah, they show the little... the dials. And, and it, it goes on forever and ever. And um, the, um, it's interesting the ships they're using because the ships they're using are the Barham and another one of the Super Dreadnoughts. I can't remember what the other one was. Uh, to play the part of the invincible and the flexible. This is not right. The the Barham has, uh, I think it's pronounced Barham, but it's uh, it's got eight 15-inch guns. They're the super, super dreadnoughts. But it, what you said earlier, it gives an idea of the power.
0: It's the deployment of power. You can understand why, you know, Britain rules the waves. You can see it. It is magnificent, actually.
1: The, and, and uh, yes, all right, so that they're not the ships that they were, but... That, They they have the effect; it gives the impact, and that's a good bit of the film. The uh, the endless it seemed to be about an hour while they were uh, coaling. Now they're they're caught coaling um, in a sense because they're still coaling at seven fifty on the eighth of December, nineteen fourteen. When out of the blue, who arrives? Who arrives, Gary? Who arrives?
0: Von Spey. Oh, who'd have thought it? What's he up to? Well, he's intent on destroying the harbour installation and any ships within it. Now, you know, we've mentioned this a number of times. He's not expecting to find
1: what he finds. No, he isn't. For a moment, it looks like there's an opportunity to almost take on, to cause severe damage to the British fleet while it's in harbour and helpless and can't move. But here we have an unexpected hero. Who is that unexpected hero? It's the Canopus.
0: It fires a long-range sailboat of 12-inch shells, which you know, naturally panic the Germans who could already see the distinctive tripod of the battlecruisers, so they can recognise the ships that, that
1: are in port. And what do you think when they saw the, bat- the tripod? Because would they know the speed? They would. They would know the speed. So what would they think? They think, we've got to get out of here. And would they
0: think they've got any chance of escaping? Probably not. Their only chance is that they're coaling. That's their only chance. So immediately get away.
1: Now, this is midshipman McEwen. He's aboard HMS Invincible. And and what does he say? Well, this is something that he wrote, Peter. He wrote, We started coaling at
0: 5.30am. At 8am, a a four-funnelled man-of-war was sighted on the horizon. We did not think anything of this, but ate a fair breakfast and started coaling again. At 9am, two ships came close to Port William where we were coaling. The Canopus, the ship stationed at Port Stanley, fired on them. The ships made off at once. At 9.05, action was sounded off, and coaling stopped immediately, and steam for main main engines was ordered.
1: Now, it's not an instantaneous process, and although it's boring in the film, because they endlessly show it, it does go on for about 10 minutes, doesn't it, Gary? It does. Uh, But it it is, in a sense, it's an over-literal representation of time passing, uh, because it's not an instant, you don't just like a modern ship, press no, modern a button. Ship,
0: press a button, start the engines off, you know, you've got to get up steam.
1: Now, uh, th- they get themselves sorted out, they, they leave uh, the harbour and they start a long stern chase. And in fact, Sydney uh, Sturdy puts up the signal saying, General chase. Um, you, what, what are their chances of catching them? Uh, what, what, what's in favour for the British?
0: Well, the weather's brilliant. You know, it's, it's clear skies, they've got fantastic visibility and a calm sea. The Germans are doomed. You know, you can see the smoke for miles.
1: So they're going to be reeled in, one by one or collectively, whatever happens, whatever Von Speed decides to do. It's only a matter of time. Because of
0: the, the, uh, uh, the speed that the British were capable of, they're going to catch them.
1: Now, this is Commander Hans Pockhammer. He's aboard uh, the Gneisenau, now, and he says, this was a very bitter pill to swallow. We choked a little at the neck. The throat contracted and stiffened, for that meant a life and death grapple. Or rather, a fight ending in honourable death. The old law of naval warfare, which ordains that the less powerful and the less swift ships should be vanquished in free waters and in fine weather, was again to be exemplified in our case. It would have been vain to harbour the slightest illusion in this respect, for the sky remained clear. Clear, clear, <laughs> clear, clear. clear, yeah, clear. It,
0: it was clear as well.
1: There was not the slightest cloud presaging bad weather to be seen, nor any wisp of fog to throw over us its kindly, its friendly mantle and hide us from the enemy's sight. So, and now notice what time firing begins. It begins at 13.20. So hours have passed before they get. And during the battle that, that followed, Von Spee, what does he do? He, what, what, what could Von Spee do?
0: All he, can, all he can do is play the hand he's got.
1: So, is it a good hand? We know no. that. It's a very bad hand. Now, assistant payweather, paymaster, uh, A.D. Duckworth, now he's in the main top, the very main so top of the Invincible. What does he say?
0: The german light cruisers were observed to be part in company with their armoured cruisers and endeavouring to get away to the westward. The Kent, Cornwall and Glasgow were dispatched to deal with this new development. The Invincible and Inflexible now worked up to 27 knots. One could feel the unusual throb in the main top as we strained under the maximum speed ever got out of the ship.
1: You you often have an unusual throb in your main top, don't you, Gary?
0: The Inflexible was on our starboard quarter. The signal was made to open fire by the Admiral and Inflexible fired the opening salvo at Leipzig who was turning to join the others of her class who were escaping. However, more pressing attention was required for the horse and Gneisenau. The Invincible took on the former, and Inflexible the latter. Our fire was not returned as we had the range of them for the first half hour. Think about that. First half hour. To me, the battle looked a highly satisfactory affair, with a real hum target at last. But suddenly, the target retaliated. <laughs> Then, for the first time, one realised that it was our turn to have a dose of shells, and one appreciated the situation fully. The familiar sight of a ship firing her guns now appeared unpleasantly real. Five columns of water simultaneously simultaneously shot into the air all around the ship. At the noise growing louder and louder, one involuntarily ducked one's head. It was a relief to find that the first salvo had not hit but they had straddled. Our turrets replied instantly, which sounded most heartening. The row was deafening. Enemy shots kept columns of water springing up just in the ship's wake or just short. Everywhere, it seemed, and yet there appeared to be no hits. The Shan Horse and Gneisenel both quickly closed us to do as much damage as their guns would allow them at the shorter range. This was at once countered on our part. So
1: what's happening? This is what this is what happened before. Von Spee is doing exactly what Craddock did. This is almost the reverse battle, isn't it? He's desperately trying to close the range so that his 8.2 inch guns, maximum range 13,500 yards, uh, could damage the, uh, the the battle cruisers, and their range was 16,400 yards. So. Uh, Spee's trying to get their range down to below 13,500. Uh, Sturdy is trying to keep the range between 13,500 and 16,000. So basically, so he can fire and and and, uh, and Von Spee can't. Um, so as, there's a sort of moving out. So the British, they're not running away, but as as Von Spee gets closer, they move away to maintain the range. Um there's an admiration for, for the, the crews of the uh, German cru- uh, of the German ships, isn't there? And this is Gunnery Officer Lieutenant V. H. Dankwertz. He's he, a fine old English name. And he's aboard HMS Kent, one of the armoured cruisers.
0: We had the most magnificent view of the finest scrap I shall see for a long time. I've never seen any ship fire heavy guns, 8.2 inch, so rapidly and continuously as the Scharnhurst and Gneisenau. They fought magnificently. The Invincible and Inflexible were loosing off as hard as they could, and we could see shots hitting the Germans. They appeared to be straddling our ships as well, but the latter were making so much smoke that it was difficult to see the results of their shooting. And again, you can see that on the BFI phone. They looked pretty awful. Sorry, they looked awfully pretty too, with their grey-blue sides shining in the sunlight. By the grace of God, it was a day in a thousand such as rarely occurs here, with no more than a gentle breeze and bright sunlight.
1: This is pretty lucky. Look- all in all, Sturdy has been pretty lucky here, and von Spee has been pretty unlucky. Now, um, the sheer weight of the British broadsides tells, and by uh, by by 1530, the Schoner is listing very heavily. And, and Sturdy closes the range to administer the coup de grace. Now, I'm going to be uh, Commander Hans Pockhammer, who's on the Ganais now. Um, and he says As we passed the Horse, we noticed that she lay deeper than usual, heeled slightly to the larboard. There was a large hole in the fore end and a similar one in the quarterdeck. Smoke was rising from the ship and flames were visible in the, in, in the interior through shell holes and portholes. But her guns thundered incessantly. Her gun, it says. The starboard batteries now came into action and brought fresh force into the fray. But it looked as if her fate were sealed. She moved more slowly in the water and suffered considerably under the hail of enemy shells. The Admiral must have felt that his ship was nearing her end. Just as he had previously sacrificed his armoured cruisers to save his light cruisers, so he proposed to sacrifice the Sharnhorst to save the Ganeys now. Determined to get the last ounce out of his resources and to fight as long as he could float and in this way facilitate the escape of our ship, he swung round to the enemy on the starboard in the hope of damaging him by firing torpedoes. The water had now risen to the fore upper deck, Fires were raging fore and aft, but the Admiral's flag floated proudly from the foremast, as also did the battle flags from the aftermast and the gaff. The Charnos gradually heeled over to larboard, and her bows became more and more submerged. Her fore turret was about six and a half feet above the water when it fired its last shot. Then the screws revolved in the air, and the ship swiftly slid head first into the abyss. Wow! Wow! Uh, sixteen, seventeen. That was the Shahnos sank. Um, uh, any survivors, Gary?
0: No, uh, both the admiral and all hands. No survivors.
1: So he was right.
0: He was right.
1: And the flowers were right.
0: Now, presumably, the British were quite happy with that, and they
1: left the now alone at this point. Oh, of course, we're no, no. The, the battle cruisers close closer and closer, and they come to three thousand yards, pounding away without mercy. Um, And they fired in all, between them, 1,174 12-inch shells. Later on, this was quite controversial.
0: 1,174.
1: At least 50 of these hit the poor organiser now. And still, they refused to surrender. Um... And they fire in as an act of defiance their sole remaining serviceable guns. And as is portrayed on the film, they open the stop cops. Do you remember that scene yep. where they, they open the, the to, to, to control the sinking? Make sure. And this is uh, Commander Hans Pockhammer again. Uh, it's me again. And I he says, he's on the gunizer now as it's going. And he says this I felt the ship giving way under me. I heard the roaring and surging of the water come nearer and nearer and was filled with the idea that I should be very cold. Yeah, the. Uh,
0: Least of his worries. Yeah,
1: When the upper deck was submerged, the speed at which the ship was capsized somewhat diminished, owing to the resistance set up, and then the ship continued to turn on her axis. I'm not quite sure what he means there, but I'm sure more intelligent people will know. The sea invaded a corner of the bridge. Oh dear, that's a bad sign when it does that. Caught me and those who were with me and tossed us away, a movement which I involuntarily accelerated by a vigorous push-off. I was caught up by a whirlpool and dragged into an abyss. The waters eddied and murmured around me and drowned in my ears. But even before suffering from loss of breath, I felt as if I was being drawn upwards by invisible hands. I opened my eyes and noticed it was brighter. Keep cool, I thought to myself, and then then began to strike out. I came to the surface. The sea was heaving. The swell was partly due to the wind, which must have sprung up in the late afternoon, and partly to the displacement of water produced by the capsizing of our ship. The latter I saw, a hundred or so yards away, her keel in the air, the red paint on her bottom, glistened in the sunlight sunset sorry i got overexcited by the, the red the, bottom uh, in the end uh pockhammer and uh, some 200 men are saved aren't they um and you you're going to be assistant paymaster duckworth of the invincible who's watching this from the other perspective isn't he
0: it was now 6 p.m a drizzling rain had set in with a biting cold southerly wind the sea had a steady swell Away ahead of us on the dull leaden sea appeared a small pale green patch of water containing a clustering mass of humanity, while the wind brought dismal cries to our ears from the only survivors of the sunken ship. Both the inflexible and ourselves steamed slowly into the mists of this mass, lowering boats and ropes. Cutters were now loaded with survivors. All around the ships there were floating bodies, some on hammocks, some on spars, some struggling, Others drowning slowly before one's eyes, before any boat could reach them. Most were so numbed they could not hold on to anything and were helpless. Many were terribly wounded and mangled. Others seemed very much alive in the circumstances. On all sides one saw all our men hauling half-frozen bodies up the side and carrying them down to the Admiral's cabin. It was a truly terrible sight and one I hope never to see again.
1: And this is, again, reflected well in that film. Uh, but basically, we urge you to buy the film. It's, it's boring in some ways because it's too long. Uh, it, it's old-fashioned and because it, it's from 1927. It is old. It's, it's nearly 100 years old. But it's worth a watch, isn't it? And it does, re- it does show things like the rescue of survivors in quite some detail.
0: It does, and, and they have worked on getting the film in as good a condition as possible. I'm not sure it's worth buying the Blu-ray as I did. You're an idiot. I am an idiot. But um, it, 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 is, it is very watchable. And there are some magnificent things that you will not see in the modern age.
1: Now, what happens to the fleeing light cruisers? Well, the Nuremberg's one. Uh, it, it's caught and destroyed by the Kent. And this is, uh, you're going to be petty officer. He's a writer. He's one of the, he's a secretarial function. Uh, H.S. Welsh, he's on HMS Kent. What does he say?
0: The Nuremberg gave a sudden lurch to starboard and sank smoothly down into the depths.
1: Oh, sorry, so so she's been battered to buggery as well by by, by the guns.
0: Yeah, to use a technical term.
1: Yeah, well, it is very technical, but yeah.
0: Uh, And sank smoothly down into the depths amid a mass of wreckage and dense clouds of smoke. The sight was one of fearful awe, and yet she turned over and sank with a graceful gliding motion, as would a cup or tumbler pressed over in a bowl of water. Those who went down with her were game to the end, for we saw a party of men standing on the quarter deck waving a German ensign, which was tied to a pole. And that, again, is reflected in the film.
1: It is, isn't it, yeah.
0: As she sank, and so they went to their watery grave. They fought well and to a finish. We did all in our power in the work of rescue, steamed right up to the spot where she sank, but could only get ten of the poor beggars aboard. No doubt, those who were not killed or wo- wounded had little life left to struggle in the icy water, and many must have been sucked down with the ship.
1: Now, this is a point we haven't raised before, but all these men—it's not—it's not like being in the sea uh, uh, here or uh, or at Gallipoli or anywhere. This is—it's freezing, bloody cold, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you would have a period of time in which you can survive, and then you're going to and that, to that death. period
1: of time not long, not long, seven, ten minutes.
0: I would think it's probably less than that.
1: Now. Uh, The same fate befalls the Leipzig. Now, that's being attacked by the Glasgow and the Cornwall. And this is uh, Lieutenant John Hamill. He's aboard the Cornwall. What does Hamill say?
0: We could not get close to her because of the terrific heat. She was listing, and we shouted to the Germans to jump. She went down without any explosion. Our four boats managed to save 14 of her crew, which was five officers and nine men. We then found out that we had been fighting the Leipzig. Those saved said there were only about... Twenty of them left alive when we finished firing. Near the end, about sixty of them got on the forecastle, and one of our six-inch shells fell among them and almost killed the lot. They said they had finished fighting one hour before, but could not haul down their flag,
1: uh, that, which is a bit unfortunate. They couldn't get to it because I think because of the fire. Uh, the Dresden, the Dresden escapes, and that will eventually be sunk by who was it who sunk her?
0: it's going to be sunk by the glasgow which i should imagine the crew had a certain uh,
1: joy about that yeah and that was on the 14th of march 1915 this business of fighting to the end of firing the last gun how do we feel about it is it is it is it, is it sensible or or is it or is it of the time it's both of the navies time. it seems to be the culture in both navies not to surrender no,
0: and rather bizarrely, again, in the film, the the Germans propose a toast to the, the, the death of the Navy and, and you know, patriotically, uh, the uh, the Admiral says, no, to, 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 here's to the death of an honourable enemy. And I think that's how they, they thought. Death at sea is awful. Awful. Just think about how you're going to die. Fire, explosion or drowning. Not great. Or freezing to
1: death. And they fight to the end, but... Is it not sensible to to surrender or is sensible just not a word that's going to come out of this? I'm not sure it's going to come out of it. And how do you do that? Well, the poor sods trying to lower the flag and they couldn't. Does the Battle of Falklands, which is what this one's called, does it have any real significance, do you think? It restores the reputation of the Royal
0: Navy, doesn't it? Let's, Let's face it. The Battle of Coronel was a defeat. There's no arguing about that.
1: Was it not a victory because of our courage? It was a victory of the courage of the men. Of course it was. But in that way, then if you look at it, then uh, the, the uh, Falcons was a victory for the Germans because of their men's courage. So it, they're not victories. They're both defe- they're defeats. One for the British, one for the Germans. Yeah,
0: the Germans lost four ships and 2,200 men killed.
1: Now, Sturdy, how much damage to his ships?
0: There's no real damage at all, frankly. As you mentioned earlier, he was able to keep a distance uh, until he went in for the kill.
1: And it's quite interesting that Fischer criticised him mercilessly for his expenditure of ammunition. Uh, but I think he did the sensible thing. It's murderous, but it's sensible. Did they ever have any real chance of von Spee and his men? No. I mean, if you think
0: about the, the role of the raider, they're doomed from from the very moment they start the mission.
1: They, they've got no chance, have they, really? They're
0: far from home. They've got limited amount of resources. OK, they can coal in certain friendly ports, but they can't get back to Germany.
1: I, I, I think, how do we feel about it? I think they're doomed, but their conduct, what do you think about that, how they behave?
0: They behave magnificently. Uh, it is of the time, uh, it is very much of the time, but it's a tribute to the, the spirit of the German Navy in 1914, I think. Uh. Now, interestingly, uh, the, in December 2019, the wreck of the Scharnhorst was discovered by uh, uh, a Mensen-bound just off the coast of the Falklands
1: wow and uh, do they have those sound pictures of it you can look at. they them. do yeah oh look at them on the internet well it's been fantastic talking to you about this I, I think this is a great book there are books about it uh, uh Barry Pitt uh, in the sixties, other books read them uh but we've it's been great to talk about it and uh, thank you very much Gary
0: cheers Pete <clears throat> Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at slash.